John 16, John 3.16 is the single most well-known verse in the Bible. You've seen it many times. We read it this morning. Children memorize it in Sunday school. Confirmation classes have it as part of their curriculum. The Gideons traditionally have placed that verse in the front page of their Bibles, usually printed in at least a dozen different languages. And missionaries. Missionaries often use it as a starting point for evangelism because it summarizes so well what the Bible is all about. In fact, 500 years ago, Dr. Martin Luther, he called this verse the gospel in a nutshell. Do you remember that from your confirmation days? Gospel in a nutshell. That it's so concise and summarizes God's love for us and the response to him. Many others agree that in this one sentence, a good deal of what Christianity is all about receives a, a quick and concise and, and an accurate summary. That's a good thing. Well, just out of curiosity in preparation for today, I typed in the phrase John 3.16 into the Google Internet search engine. And you know what? There are a few references. <laughs> in fact, I found at least 175,000 web pages. 175,000. And worldwide, these contain a direct reference to this verse. Some of those that I found, I kind of smiled at. One was guyshop.com. Now, come, I'm, I'm not advertising this website. But for the low, low price of $24.95, you can buy a necktie with the whole verse printed on it. And for $16.95, another store gives you a sign that looks just like a regular highway sign, but with John 3.16 printed on where you would expect to see Interstate 35 or something like that. You can also purchase John 3.16 flags and jewelry and t-shirts shirts and coffee mugs. I know I've seen a number of you folks having various items along these lines as well. So it's, it's pretty common. But maybe the one that kind of caught my attention the most of, uh, was, was this one slide on a car, NASCAR. A racing team. The website is jcracingteam.com. Look at that thing. It's a white one. says on the top, Jesus cares. On the front bumper, running at God's speed. And then, for God so loved the world, there's that John 3.16. Notice the number on the left, 3.16. And down by the wheel well, J.C., obviously, Jesus Christ. How's that for a witness? I, that just kind of brought a smile to my face. Uh, it's an actual NASCAR uh, car that races and enters real races. I don't think it's ever won, but it's doing what it's supposed to do, and that is get the word out to the folks watching. So the entire point is many folks are familiar with this verse. And yet, I'm guessing if, if I were to go around the room, uh, you guys being exceptional, of course, but go around a normal room would be the context in which Jesus discusses this, this verse is with Nicodemus. Hmm, that's nice. And because this verse is so delightful and lovely, we assume that the two are chit-chatting in which the first time spoken must be equally delightful and bright and airy and lovely and all that goes with what we think of John 3.16. In a real way, however, the opposite may be closer to the truth. It wasn't quite that loving, carry kind of approach, it seems. You see, the first hint we get of this is that it comes when John tells us Nicodemus came to Jesus at night. At night. 
Now, this guy Nicodemus, he emerges from the shadows of the night and eventually all but disappears back into those shadows too. Why do you do that at night? Isn't it because you don't really want to be seen? Well, we really don't know very much about this guy. He's mentioned five times in the book of John, in the Gospel of John, but nowhere else. Well, we do know that he was a Pharisee. Now, the Pharisees, they were kind of a political religious group, the conservative branch of Judaism versus the Sadducees, which would be the, the liberal version and variety of Judaism. So he was part of this group, the Pharisees, and actually apparently a pretty powerful one at that, since he sat on the Jewish ruling council known as the Sanhedrin. So he was a big shot, a religious VIP with a list of credentials as long as your arm. Apparently he had advanced theological degrees, maybe honorary doctorates, so to speak. Half a column in the Jerusalem edition of Who's Who. And if you were a Jew living anywhere near Jerusalem in those days, you knew who Nick was. You'd recognize his face when he passed by you on the sidewalk. But of course, I think we all know fame cuts both ways, cuts two ways. And nice as it was to be recognized everywhere he went, this fame was not so nice when Nicodemus went someplace where he wanted to be anonymous. Sounds kind of ominous, doesn't it? But in the case of our text from John 3, it wasn't that he was going to some, some irrepute type of a place, no. The place to which Nicodemus wanted to go was the house where the new rabbi in town was staying. But an upstanding Pharisee such as himself generally avoided the company of the, the lesser religious figures. Well, this Jesus fellow was clearly a messianic wannabe who had recently nearly destroyed the whole Passover festival by literally whipping the temple into a frenzy as he drove out the money changers, turned over tables, and made a mess of things. So he wasn't on the best of terms with the political and religious powers that be at that time. And Nicodemus knew that. So he's thinking, do I want to be associated with this guy? And yet there's something special about this Jesus guy. So he comes to him, but at night. For some reason, Nicodemus felt the need to see this man anyway. And so he waits until the public eye shuts for the night, until most windows in Jerusalem were dark. And then at night, he pays Jesus a visit. He likely got Jesus out of bed. They didn't watch the late show at night. And Jesus probably obliged, apparently because he did speak with him. He puts on a pot of tea or whatever it is that they did. And the two of them whiled away the wee hours of the night, chatting by a fire. Well, Nicodemus came to Jesus with a great deal of respect. That's saying quite a bit. And yet Nicodemus wasn't quite ready to believe that Jesus is Messiah. Messiah, the fulfillment of the promise made to Adam and Eve in the garden and carried throughout thousands of years that the Messiah would come and restore God's people to God himself. He wasn't quite ready to make that leap. But he was ready to admit that Jesus may be a great prophet. That, that's okay. And even if, as a prophet, Jesus' words were spoken, they would be considered God's words. That's how prophets were viewed. Well, as the Holy Spirit inspired John to record this conversation, we have the opportunity to learn what Nicodemus learned that night. And here it is. This is probably the main lesson that Nicodemus learned and one that you and I 
receipt, re, re, repeat week in and week out. Nicodemus heard from Jesus that no one could get right with God because of who he is or what he or she has done. How many times they went to church, how much money they might give to charities. Now Nicodemus learned that night that he and all of mankind are made acceptable to God for only one reason. Why? Because God chooses to do so. God chose you and me, my friends, to be part of his family, not vice versa. We say this week in and week out for those of us who come regularly or watch regularly. We kind of go ho-hum, yeah, we know that. But you got to see that most of the world doesn't get that. They're trying to do things to either earn God's good favor or in some fashion get right with God. But that's not what Jesus was telling Nicodemus, and it's not what he's telling you and me. Well, as a topper of the evening those many years ago, Nicodemus was the first to hear God speak that marvelous promise to mankind that has blessed all of mankind throughout history. Here it is. For God so loved the world that he gave his only Son, that whoever believes in him will not perish, but have eternal life. It goes on, verse 17. For God did not send his Son into the world to condemn the world, but in order that the world might be saved through him. Isn't that great? There it is. The nutshell of the Christian faith, as Dr. Martin Luther said 500 years ago. Nicodemus learned, and I hope that you have too over the years, that God loves, that he gave, and that he saves. Pretty simple, isn't it? And this incredible love of God, my friends, is not static or self-centered. And that's what our second lesson from Ephesians was all about. Paul saying, you got it, enjoy it, but use it. Because God's love reaches out and draws others in. It's one of the reasons we come together week in and week out. We need each other. We need to be fed ourselves, of course, but we need to reach out to those around us. And here, in this verse... God sets the pattern of what true love is, the basis for all loving relationships. When you love someone dearly, you're willing to give freely to the point of self-sacrifice. As evidence, we know God paid dearly with the life of his son, the highest price he could pay. And Jesus accepted our punishment. He died a horrible death instead of us. He paid the price of our sins, death and separation from God. But that, in turn, made it possible for us to have a new life. Wonderful. Well, the last picture we have of Nicodemus is not in that room that night with Jesus. But now it's Good Friday. And we see him joining one more guy of the Jewish faith that was relatively well-known, a guy named Joseph, and he was from Arimathea. So the two of them, on Good Friday afternoon, asked for Jesus' body once Jesus was declared dead by the Roman soldiers who were standing guard at the foot of the cross on which Jesus had been nailed. So these two guys, Nicodemus and Joseph, even though it's late on a Friday afternoon, they had to shut things down, the Jewish faith, their Sabbath started at 6 o'clock on Friday night. Now it's about 3 o'clock Friday afternoon is when he died. So in that time, Nicodemus and Joseph, they wanted to provide as much a respectable burial as they could. Why that's significant is realizing what he was risking. 
Nicodemus was making a bold move. He was continuing to grow even in difficult circumstances. And that's the second thing I want us to remember this morning. That we're not intended just to know, but where response of growth and action follows. Because Nicodemus had to make a choice. Is he going to come out of the closet, so to speak, and reveal himself as, as a believer of this Jesus guy? Knowing that it could cost him his respect and consideration within that Jewish community. But he was willing. He continued to grow even in difficult circumstances. Do you see any parallels to your life and mine? Uh-huh. You see, God looks for steady growth in our faith walk as well. Not instant perfection, because we're not there, nor will we ever be there perfectly, but a growth process. And it may take a long time. We're still working on it, aren't we? I am. But it must take place. Kind of pull things together here with an um, illustration. It's a Korean film called The Way Home. Maybe some of you saw it. I've only seen clips of it. But it's, I thought it was just such a marvelous illustration of God's love for us and how we respond and how that can get out of whack sometimes. Well, this movie, The Way Home, uh, offers a wonderful parallel, parable of love in action. This little seven-year-old boy, his name is Sang Woo. Okay, looks like a typical little kid. He's taken by his mother to stay with Grandma. Now, Sang Woo's mom was a single gal, lost her job in Seoul in Korea, and asked her mom to watch her son while she seeks employment. Okay, that happens. Maybe some of you are in that situation yourself. Well, this is one of the daughter's few visits back to her home in the hills since she left it years before. Didn't do a whole lot of support for mom as mom aged. But she made the request of mom anyway, and grandma accepted. So the city boy comes to grandma's house, and he's appalled by his grandmother's shack. No running water, no plumbing, no electricity. Wow! And when he learns that his grandmother is mute, that, that she can't talk, he calls her ugly names, a little brat. Grandma tries to make the boy feel welcome, but saying, Woo, turns away her love. Ooh, starting to see some parallels to us. Little Sangwoo retreats into playing with his Game Boy and postcards of superheroes. And he whines about Grandma's food, eating the cans of Spam he had brought with him. And then he tells Grandmother he wants chicken to eat. So the old woman sells some of the produce from the vegetable garden, which was her only source of income. She walks to town to buy a chicken for the boy. She cooks it for Sangwoo, only to be rewarded by his refusal to eat it. I want Kentucky Fried Chicken, he complained. Well, time after time, the old woman endures such rejection. And time after time, she continues to meet his wants. Well, one day, Grandma and the boy uh, take her vegetables to town to sell. Again, that's her only source of income. But she takes the produce, sells it, and she spends most of the money earned on a new pair of sneakers for the little guy. And she also treats him to a restaurant meal, which living in the hill country, they didn't do. And the little guy slurps up a bowl of noodles while she had only a cup of tea 
because didn't have enough money. Well, she puts him on the bus home, but he refuses to take her heavy bag with him. And the bus pulls away, leaving the bent-over woman to walk home carrying the heavy load. She'd spent all of her money on the grandson and had no money left for her own bus fare back home. Okay, now it's building to a climax here. We get to the good part. It had to be a good part, because right now I want to slap that little guy. Only when Sang-woo sees his grandma walking home, carrying her heavy bag instead of taking the bus, does it finally sink in for the little guy? At that point, he recognizes her unconditional love for him. In spite of all the mean stuff he did, she still loved him. And finally, as the movie comes to an end, and that's why I like it, it comes to a, a good end as far as I'm concerned, there's a transformation in the thoughtless brat. And he learns to offer loving acts similar to the, those that had been modeled for him by Grandma. Well, it's often said that children express the qualities and tendernesses, tendencies of their parents. I believe that. Kids end up mimicking what they see and what they hear in their parents most of the time. Doing and saying. If you want to kind of, I tell couples in our pre-marriage stuff, if you want to know what your spouse might be like, look at mom and dad. And there's been more than one tear shed when I say that. But since we are Christians, as Christians, are children of God, children of God, what do you think that means? Perhaps we should be asking ourselves, how much am I like Daddy? How much of our Heavenly Daddy do people see in us? Are we more like Sung Woo, the little guy, selfish, only taking? Or are we more like Grandma on the giving end of it? What do people see in us when we leave here this morning or mornings like today? Clarence Jordan there's all kinds of Bible paraphrases and translations. I know a number of you have a variety of Well, Clarence Jordan has one. He has a, a southern slang paraphrase of the Bible. Here's how he paraphrases this John 3.16. He says, My little ones, let's not talk about love. Let's not sing about love. Let's put love into action and make it real. I thought that's a pretty good summary. He's right, isn't he? in his paraphrase of it. Making it real. Putting it into action. That's what love is all about. Love is always a verb. It's not a noun. It's not a description. It's something that you do. Love acts. It does. And that's why in the John 3, 16, for God so loved, what did he do? That he gave. There's the operative for you and me on our takeaway this morning. Our Heavenly Daddy loves us. And the question for you and me as we leave here this morning is, do people see that same love in us? Who's the real you? Amen.